0: I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3, if you're using the Pew Bible, again, it's page 448. Let's go to the Lord and ask His blessing upon our study of His Word this morning. Father, we thank you for your word of truth, its authority, its clarity, its sufficiency, and pray, O Lord, that this eternal truth of your word would be written upon our hearts as we look to you, our faithful God, as we look to the work of the Holy Spirit, who has promised to take that word of truth and to apply it effectually to the hearts of your called-out people. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Psalm 3 is a psalm that fits into that well known category of a psalm of lament. What I love about the psalms in general and what I love about the laments in particular is their genuine, real, oftentimes very raw nature. You have the psalmist taking his heart and really bearing it all before the Lord. There's no pretension, nor is there a sort of a guarded prayer to God, but instead pure, heartfelt emotion before the Lord God who sees all, who knows all, who rules over all. Because of their raw nature, sometimes you might come to a psalm of lament, and it might seem at first glance to be very disturbing. It might seem as though the psalmist is bringing harsh accusations against the Lord, calling the nature of God into question. But I think it's helpful to keep in mind that simply the fact that the psalmist approaches God The fact that we find laments in the pages of Scripture in the first place is a confession that he believes in the sovereign rule of God. He believes in the covenant promises of the Lord. He believes that there is hope and salvation in his great king or he would never come to God at all. If you don't believe that God is good, if you don't have a firm conviction that he is the sovereign ruler over all then you would not bring your lament to him. When you read the Psalms of lament, the reason for the lament could be a number of things. It could be that the psalmist is experiencing inner turmoil as he's wrestling perhaps with temptation. As he perhaps is reaping consequences from past decisions. He might be facing hardship at the hand of another... Frequently the psalms of lament are cries out against enemies, either enemies that he is facing or enemies that are against the people of God. A lament might even be frustration against God himself. There is knowledge that God is sovereign over all, that he has infinite power at his disposal... And so if the psalmist finds himself in a circumstance in which he is seemingly overwhelmed by those circumstances, couldn't God change such things if he so desired? And so the lament might take the form of, why, O Lord? So whether it's the self, whether it's enemies, whether it's God himself, the lament takes that anguish and processes it in the presence of the Lord. John Calvin says that instead of stoically stifling our emotions, that a better way is disburdening our cares to Him. And thus, as it were, pouring out our hearts before Him. Isn't that just a great image of what we oftentimes do in the Christian life? Piling on burdens of fear, worry, anxiety, people-pleasing, anger, confusion, heartache, disappointment, and more. All of those things we can and we should bring before the Lord, laying them before Him, casting all of our burdens on Him because He cares for you. So let's consider how this psalm of lament guides us in doing just that in learning how to face trouble and hardship in the context of a covenantal relationship with the God who is the ruler of the universe. First, we see that David utters a complaint against his enemies, A complaint against his enemies in verses 1 and 2. Now notice the historical context of this psalm. The psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now there are only a dozen or so psalms that give the historical setting of when they were written. There's scholarly debate as to when these headings were added and whether we should give any value and credence to them or if we should simply ignore them. I'm inclined to think that there's no reason to discount those headings. And certainly the context of Psalm 3 fits within this period of David's life. You'll recall Second Samuel uh, around chapters 15 through 18 in which Absalom, David's son, very methodically and carefully and intentionally over the course of several years conspires to win the hearts of the people of Israel in order to take the throne from his aging father David. As David advances in his years, Absalom comes along and he portrays himself as much more of a people's king. One who understands their needs. One who is more accessible to them. One who could do a much better job than his father. To top it off, Absalom is strikingly handsome with long, flowing, beautiful hair. We read in 2 Samuel that from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there is no blemish in him. What a description. If Prince Absalom were alive today, he would put Prince William to shame. (laughs) He is the one who would be all over the magazine covers and the checkout line at Publix. You couldn't help but glance over at his chiseled face that doesn't need Photoshop to enhance it. As Absalom's popularity rises, he is even able to convince some from David's closest advisors to support him. Clearly, this is a very significant crisis in David's life. At this point in David's reign, he has already been through great hardship. He was anointed when he was still a young man, anointed to be the successor to Saul. But then he flees from Saul out into the wilderness as Saul pursues him, seeking his life. Finally, after David ascends to the throne... He goes out in battle and fights numerous excursions, driving out the enemies of the Lord and the enemies of God's people. He's even experienced God's great forgiveness in his sin with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. And finally he gets to the point where there is peace in the land, but not peace in his family as this happens. He finds himself banished from the throne, fleeing into the wilderness. His head hung in sorrow, as those who he thought were his trusted advisors, friends, even family have now betrayed him. Those who were supposed to be trustworthy are now against him. And not only have they risen up against him, but in verse 2 we read that they mock him. They attack his relationship with the Lord. How can you claim to have divine favor with God when clearly he has cast you from the throne... Your own inability to do anything about it points to the fact that God has abandoned you. You might remember Shimei from the household of Saul that as David is leaving Jerusalem, he hurls down curses and stones upon him as he leaves the city. So here's what we notice about these enemies who are against him. They come from an unexpected source. It's his own son against him. Here is one who ought to be close to David, in fact, among the closest and the most loyal to him. These enemies are numerically significant. There are thousands that have risen up against him under the leadership of Absalom. Humanly speaking, David's reign is over. If you were to wager on what the outcome of this event would be, it would make no sense to presume that David would ever recover. This is not a mere hiccup in his reign. This is not just an inconvenience that he faces for a day or two. This is an outright coup. And there is no indication that he will recover. And these enemies are arrogant in their speech against the Lord's anointed. Mocking him for his trust in the Lord. Pointing to his circumstances and again saying, How could God possibly be with you if your life is such a shambles? The taunt is essentially a challenge or a mockery of David's helplessness. The appearance is though God is either against him or God is powerless to do anything about his circumstances. It's important for us to recognize that the laments capture very real and very desperate situations. He is not being poetically dramatic here. This is not hyperbole. This is real life. Things are this discouraging and bleak in David's outlook on his circumstances. Now, as you think about your own life and you think about how to take a psalm of lament like this one and apply it to your life, don't think only in terms of your immediate circumstances. Now, it could be that you read a psalm like this and you really can identify with David's experience. As you think about the struggles that you're going through at this point in life... Or it could be that you read a psalm like this and you have no idea what he's talking about because you're not facing a personal crisis, if you will, of this magnitude. But I think the charge from a psalm of lament like this is to take this truth and store it up within your heart for when that hardship does come. Because one thing that great hardship can do when it comes into our life is to lead us to believe that we are alone, that no one knows what it's like to face such betrayal. From the hand of one who pledged love and faithfulness, that no one knows what it's like to be spoken to in such an antagonistic and harsh manner, that no one knows what it's like to try to be faithful in the midst of such cruelty and hatred, and when we convince ourselves that we are alone in our hardship and suffering, then that can cause us to retreat into ourselves and away from our church family, away from the covenant community. But the reality is we are not alone, and we are not unique in our hardship. We have a faithful Savior who endured so much more than we ever will. We read earlier this morning from Matthew chapter 27, in which Jesus experienced the betrayal of Psalm 3 on an infinitely greater scale. Not only was he tormented physically, not only was he mocked by the words of his accusers, but he truly was alone. He truly was abandoned, not only by those who were supposed to stay by his side, not only his disciples who pledged their loyalty to him to stay with him to the very end, but he was handed over by his heavenly Father as he became a curse for us. He saved others. Let him save himself. You trust in God. Let God deliver you. There is no salvation for you. We are never alone, for we have a faithful Savior and Redeemer who is always with us and who knows better than we ever will the experience of betrayal and abandonment. And this, you see, really gets at the crux of the psalm of lament. It's a complaint directed to God because this is not how things are supposed to be. Todd Billings is a pastor Who at age 39 was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, a rare form of of blood cancer, even more rare for someone his age, not how things are supposed to be. While he was going through significant and painful treatment of stem cell transplant, he wrote a series of journal reflections that he recently turned into a book. And one of the things that brought him great comfort during those times in which he experienced long periods of isolation as his immune system was so compromised The thing that brought him great comfort was extensive time in the Psalms of Lament. Billings writes, Our culture often suggests that we are entitled to a long-fulfilling life. But if that doesn't happen, there must be someone to sue, someone to blame. But as creatures, we do not live in a world as individuals who own this world, but as temporary stewards of God's good gifts. God is not our debtor. God is God and we are not. He does not owe us a certain number of requisite years of life or a certain type of life that we envision and think that we deserve. So perhaps our laments tend to take the form of complaining about our circumstances because of what we believe we are entitled to. But where the Psalms of lament redirect us, is helping us to learn to lament in the right things and to learn to take joy in the right things. And so instead of lamenting our difficult circumstances, shouldn't we instead, Billings suggests, mourn for that which injures the body of Christ and leads away from Christ's kingdom and rejoice in the promises of God fulfilled in Christ? The Lord speaks to Job at the end of that book in chapter 38. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its, its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? You see, the call of the lament is really to be driven outside of ourselves and to rest in the sovereign Lord. And this is exactly the turning point for David in this psalm. It comes in verse 3. A cry out to the Lord that is grounded in his unchanging nature. And that's our next point this morning. A cry to the Lord in verses 3 and 4. And there's several things that we learn from this cry to the Lord. It's a cry of confidence that the Lord hears. Again, verses 1 and 2 are our lament regarding his circumstances. Verses 3 begins this shift as he looks to the Lord. And it's a confident cry to God based upon God's covenant faithfulness. Being mindful of who the Lord is, being mindful of who we are. That means that we take our questions and hardships and we humbly bring them before the Lord, the one who is filled with infinite wisdom, while recognizing at the same time our own limitations. That we are limited in power while he is infinite in strength. Well, we are limited in knowledge. Well, he has infinite knowledge and wisdom at his disposal. We look to the one who is sufficient in all of these areas. And so it's a cry of confidence that God hears. And it's a confident cry that is also grounded in the unchanging nature of God. Look at the attributes of God's nature that the psalmist uses to feed his confidence. You are a shield about me. You are an impenetrable force... Nothing can get through, over, around, or under without your knowledge and care. You are my glory. Kavod, or glory, has to do with that which carries weight, that which we give attention to, that which carries significance. It is the glory of the Lord. It is the weightiness of God which is to overshadow everything. You are the lifter of my head. And so it's the kingly reign of the Lord that causes David to look up, to look to him in awe and in wonder. Think of how frequently in your own life you tend to look down, so to speak, looking down to your own problems, looking down to your own disappointments, looking down to the many insignificant things that preoccupy your mind and heart. And so what do you need? You need to look up. You need to learn to get your eyes off of yourself onto his majesty and his glory. As you learn to do this, it creates within you a proper perspective of the world around you. A lifted head is a posture of confidence, a posture of victory, away from self pity. God is bigger than all our problems, all of our worries, all of our anxieties... ...and He reigns over them all. We read in 1 Chronicles 16... ...let let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice... ...and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Psalm 103, the Lord has established His throne in heaven... ...and His kingdom rules over all. In Exodus chapter 15... After the Lord works his amazing act of deliverance, bringing the children of Israel out from the land of Egypt, they cross through the Red Sea, and the armies of Pharaoh are destroyed behind them. And and Moses pens that amazing song. And at the end of that song, in verse 18, he says, to sum it all up, the Lord will reign forever and ever. You might recall last week, Pastor McWilliam is pointing out that the kingly office of Christ is one that we don't dwell upon enough. And it's here, you see, in verse 3 and 4 of Psalm 3, that the kingly reign of the Lord is described, protector, victorious one, the one who is glorious over all. And this helps to drive out fear and sorrow from David's life. So he reigns over everything. He reigns over everyone. This great and exalted king is to be worshipped and adored. As we learn to exalt Him, as we learn to fill our minds with the truth of His character, that will enable us to get our eyes off of our petty concerns and learn to rest in Him. It might be as simple and and very practical as each day starting your day by confessing, God is God and I am not. Either He is in charge or I am. Who would I rather trust? He is a God who is sufficient. David may lose his kingdom. At this point in his life, he doesn't know what the outcome of this event will be. And yet, God is his glory. God is his kavod, his weightiness, his substance, his value, his worth. And so, it's a cry of confidence that the Lord hears. It's a cry that's directed to God based upon the unchanging nature of who God is. And it's a cry that the Lord answers. We read in verse 4 that the Lord answers from his holy hill. Well, what is the answer? Is it an immediate change of circumstance? Is it a return of David to the throne that he wants to return to and, and sit and reign upon? Is it an audible voice from that holy hill? Does God speak words of comfort to him? Rather, the holy hill is the place where the Ark of the Covenant resides... It's the place where we find the covenantal presence of the Lord. The word of God that has already come to David is what he is being mindful of. The answer from the holy hill is an answer that was already given to him. The answer to David's prayer is him learning to rest in the revelation of God. Back in chapter 2, verse 6. We read there, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, the Lord says. This, you see, is the answer that the Lord has given to David's cry. It's an answer to David that transcends his circumstances. It's an answer that even transcends his reign as king. You see, as David is driven from his throne, he is being reminded that his reign is temporary and fragile. It's weak. It's fleeting. He knows that one day he will pass from this earth and another will take his place on the throne. Perhaps it's now and perhaps it's Absalom. And so the comfort that comes to David is not that he will return to the rightful place of sitting on the throne, but that another, the Lord's anointed, the king appointed from on high will reign for eternity. He is the answer from that holy hill. And when he ascends to that place of reign... No one will ever displace him. He will never be challenged. His reign will never be filled with weakness. Back to our passage from Matthew chapter 27. It was there on that holy hill outside of the city of Jerusalem that our Savior answered this cry for help. It's there that he appeared weak and defeated. It's there that he appeared to be driven from his rightful place. It's there that he appeared finished. And in fact, it was there that he did finish the work that he came to accomplish. It was there that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and remained silent before his accusers. This is the answer from the holy hill that David sees in shadow form, but we see in substance. As I read through the Psalms and as I see the confidence that the writers of the psalmists have as they look to the Lord, as they see only in shadow form what God's covenant promises will accomplish, how much more should we, as we look back and rest in the substance, in the finished work of our Savior? And so as David cries out to the Lord in verses 3 and 4, we then, as we move on thirdly, find in the next two verses peace enjoyed, peace and rest enjoyed. David takes that prayer of confidence in verses 3 and 4 and he applies it to his present circumstances. And notice that there are very practical results of his trust in the Lord. He lays down to sleep knowing that it is the Lord who sustains him and it drives out fear no matter how many stand against him. David has been driven from that kingly chamber in which he could rest with any number of protectors outside there to come and uh, do his bidding at any time. But I mean, Now he lies perhaps in a field, exposed to the elements, susceptible to anyone who might pass by. And yet he's able to lie and rest and sleep, to close his eyes, to put himself in that most vulnerable position of sleep as he trusts in the Lord... To know that he is being sustained by the tender hand of mercy. What greater application of trust than resting in the arms of the Lord. Entrusting your very life to him. As an infant confidently finds rest in the loving arms of a parent. How much more can we rest in the infinitely loving arms of our heavenly father. Filled with unlimited strength. To protect us and guard us and hold us close to him. What confidence to know that there is nothing that can happen to us apart from his sovereign will. There is nothing in this world that could cause us to lose our ultimate hope in him. There was an ancient church father who lived in a land that was very hostile to the message of the gospel yet he would not stop boldly proclaiming the good news of the grace of the Lord Jesus. He was brought before the queen of the land who demanded that he ceased, but he refused. She said to him, that I will take from you all that you own. He said, no matter, for all that I own belongs to the Lord Jesus. Then I will ruin your reputation. It does not matter to me. I am declared righteous in Christ, and so there is nothing that you can say that will condemn me. For I have peace with God. Then I will hand you over to be tortured and killed. You cannot take my life from me. For to die would be of great gain. Because I would then behold the face of my Savior. And it's this covenant faithfulness of the Lord that we as his people may always draw upon. That our position as a child of God is never in doubt. We are fellow heirs with Christ Jesus, and no matter how many thousands of thousands might rise up against us, there is nothing that can happen to us in an ultimate sense. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who is greater than all, has given them to me, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So as we think of the lament, we could think of it as a type of protest. Sort of making a case against God. And by that I don't mean at all arrogantly putting him on trial. By making a case, I mean drawing upon the unchanging nature of who he is. Looking to his promises. Inciting those promises back to him in our prayers appropriately holding him to his word of promise, for his word can never change. He did not have to make covenant promises to his people, but he did. And because he did, we can confidently hold him to those promises. And that brings us to our final point in verses 7 and 8, where we see that there was a longing for judgment and a rest in salvation. Longing for judgment and rest in salvation of the Lord. Look there again. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Really, we're talking here about one definitive act that David is longing for. One final day of reckoning. Judgment for those who fight against the Lord and against his anointed, and salvation for those who find their refuge in him. David trusts in the purposes of God. He learns to rest in the Lord, and yet at the same time, he, as, this experience of injustice causes him to long for a day of ultimate vindication. Now, this might seem like an obvious question, but where does Psalm 3 fit within the Psalter? Well, it's right after 1 and 2, of course. Now, this is not the first psalm that David wrote. This is not the first psalm that captures, really, the first experience of David's life that he writes about. So, if it does not fit chronologically within David's life, then why put it here? Why put it after Psalm 1 and 2? Which, if you'll remember, both serve as introductory psalms to the rest of the Psalter. Remember Psalm 1. It's one that casts this vision between wickedness and righteousness, between foolishness and wisdom. And it all has to do with how one thinks about the word of the Lord. Psalm 2 is a meditation upon the wickedness of man as he attempts to overthrow the rightful rule of God and his sovereign anointed king. It's a psalm, if you'll remember from just a few weeks ago when Pastor McWilliams preached from it, A psalm that ends with a warning of impending judgments and yet an offer of hope for the one who bows in humble subjection before that king. Psalm 2 is a glorious psalm exalting the Lord's power, exalting his authority and his reign over all things. That he is the mighty one who rules. That he looks at those who seek to overthrow him and he mocks, he scoffs at them because of their futility and their inability. But then we get to Psalm 3, and it begins with the rightful king being driven from the holy hill. It seems like the promises of Psalm 2 are already failing. But that's just from our limited, weak, limited, and finite perspective, isn't it? The reality is judgment is coming, and we can trust in the Lord to make all things right. The cry of David for this day of deliverance and this day of vengeance is a cry that flows out of a submissive heart that is trusting in the Lord's timing for that day. It's the confidence that this final and ultimate day of deliverance is coming that leads to great freedom and trust. Even if we are wronged, even if we are misrepresented and persecuted, we can trust in the Lord's righteous vengeance. And here in verse 8 we see, as someone has put it, really a summary of the entire Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to Him. He is the one who initiates redemption while we were yet His enemies. We had hostility and hatred in our hearts toward God And yet he brought salvation to his people. He reaches down. He saves sinners. He initiates grace and mercy. He condescends to save. He enables us to persevere to the end. What comfort. What confidence. What peace is ours that we have this blessing from the Lord. Charles Spurgeon. We've got to throw Spurgeon in there. Charles Spurgeon in verse 8, speaking about that, he says, contained here in verse 8 is the sum and substance of Calvinistic doctrine. Salvation from first to last belongs to God Most High. He is the one who chooses His people. He is the one who calls them by His grace. He is the one who quickens them by His Spirit. He is the one who keeps them by His power. And so if we look at the psalm and get sort of a bird's eye view and how it moves from beginning to end, it moves as a whole from hardship to praise, from despair to doxology, from lament to rest. The rest of verse 5 is a rest that is again captured at the end in verse 8, resting in the achievement of another, resting in the provision of salvation. The salvation is of the Lord, resting in his kingly rule, resting in his anointed one. How much of the lament in your own life is the accumulation of weariness and self-inflicted burdens? May we as God's people this day and all of our days be driven to our faithful Savior. Whether for the first time or for the thousandth time... Come to me, Jesus says, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Amen.